Hello again. Welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at braintraffic.com. Welcome back, friends and neighbors. It's Christina. Um, I have some very, very special guests with me today. Um, They are friends from Microsoft. I have Karen Kessler and Jonathan Foster from the Cortana team. Karen, tell me a little bit about your role. You bet. Uh, So we (laughs) are... Good job. Off to a good start. (laughs) We collectively are part of a content team here at Microsoft in the Windows and Devices group. So we provide content for um, all of our customers on how to use our devices, our devices and Windows and our services. And so we provide good content for consumers and developers and IT admins, a whole variety of people that use technology at home and at work. And I lead that team and it's a bunch of fun. Oh, so you, you have all the content. Yeah, well, you know, that's why I say we. Yeah, right, right. No, you're in charge. You're in charge. Jonathan, whose content do you have? I have a certain group of content. My team is called the Content Intelligence, and that covers a lot of things. It covers anything from the way that we can leverage artificial intelligence to serve up content. A good example of that would be understanding the context of a user in any given state in a flow. And then being able to pop a message or some, something that we do as writers at the right place in the right time. And then also uh, on the other end of the spectrum is, is probably e- most easily expresses conversational design and conversational writing. And that is for, for bots and uh, uh, specifically uh, one of the big bots, uh, Cortana. We uh, have people on my team have been uh, creating and, and designing the experience of Cortana for since before it was launched back in 2014 but we also do uh support bots and that kind of thing where conversational design principles are in play for writers so i'm an idiot because i started off with you guys do cortana and then you are instead all the content and in my defense the reason i said that is that you are coming to speak about content at confab this year yes and so that of course is my narrow focus because it all comes back to confab that's not true, but right now, this time of this time of year, it's all confab all the time. So May first, so yes, join join us, won't you? Excellent. So, Karen, I want to start by having you talk to me a little bit about how your content operations are set up. Can you just talk to me a little bit about structure and process and and the primary tools you use? Just anything that would help listeners get a sense of how you manage the content machine. So. We have a variety of different types of content that we create. We put stuff on the web, of course. Uh, We've got a lot of content that's actually in product. I think for this conversation, it'd be most helpful for me to focus on sort of what we call the consumer audience here. But that, if you think broadly of that, that's me at home and me at work. I'm using a Windows device or Office I could be using Office on my Android phone, for example. So we're really thinking differently at Microsoft about devices. It's not just Windows devices, but it's people's phones as well. 
And so that's a big change for us and a big shift. But some more specifically to the mechanics on the consumer side, we have really invested deeply in the last few years in creative writing talent. And that's a different type of skill set that people often think about technical writing when you think of software companies. And so the idea that we have creative writers that are writing in product UI text and the, the words that we're using now are UX writing, which is a popular term in the industry today. If you look at publications like Medium or blogs, you'll see people talk more about UX writing, which is partly the words that are in the software, but also the narrative and the storytelling around a customer's journey through our products. So it's a paradigm shift in how we think about product design. And writers are a key component of the teams that are creating all the software. So when you think of Windows, Office, Xbox, our Surface devices, we have writers that are part of the feature teams that are creating the software and in some cases the hardware for those products. And they're informing the narrative of those customer journeys, as well as the actual words that customers engage with and interact with in the products. And then, of course, once you're using the product, we're there for you along the way with helpful tips or little pieces of information, as Jonathan described in his introduction. From a process point of view, you could imagine, uh, let's just call it a feature crew that's composed of software engineers, designers, writers, researchers, and those people are all working together to create the experiences that we're going to put in the products and give to our customers. And there's a lot of iteration on those experiences. And then there's a lot of building the software itself. Some of that's a strictly engineering process, of course, as you might think of software development. Some of it is content tools and then content publishing, depending on what the endpoint is for that content. But our organization is part of the Windows engineering team, which is an important point because if you look at historically the placement of content teams in organizations of large tech companies, for example, uh, you'll see sometimes content teams that are organized, sometimes closely aligned with support, sometimes closely aligned with marketing. And then you'll find other organizations where it's actually embedded into the product creation. And that's the case here at Microsoft. And that's been an evolution over the years from sort of around the product to in the product. And being part of that engineering team is a critical component to how we work and how we ensure success with what we actually deliver to customers. And just quickly to clarify... Because this is, I'm seeing this more and more where writers, instead of just being like a little pocket of writers, that things get thrown over the wall and then they have to fill in the lorem ipsum or the blanks or whatever, or write this interface copy after the whole thing's already been developed. Are you, from a functional standpoint, are writers co-locating with those teams? Do they report into those teams specifically? Are they assigned to uh, sprints? Like, how does that work? Who do they report into? So we are a central team. So everyone is organized. If you think of a organizational hierarchy, I'm the leader of, uh, we've got about 150 people crossing all audiences. And then I, that's content team, is organized within our design team. So we have a large design team and research team. We call that organization experiences and insights because we deliver experiences to customers, which include visuals that our designers create. 
words that come from the writers. And then we have insights, customer insights that come from our research team. So that's been a, a functional experiment over the last four years here at Microsoft, where we have a dedicated team that's central. And then we're not all in one building, but we're in nearby buildings. But the day-to-day -day work using your term, Christina, of like co-located those writers actually spend a lot of time in the locations where the engineers are. And so there's a lot of, it's not far walking, like Microsoft's got a big campus, but everybody finds a way to meet together. Sometimes we use Skype like we are today. But the co-location of the work is a dedicated feature team in which the writers and designers are, just think of them as embedded as part of that V team, if you Interesting. will. Interesting. Got it. Got it. Good. And Jonathan, how does that play out with your team? So to be clear, I am on Karen's team, and I didn't state that earlier, but it's it's easier to understand. So I am delivering a certain kind of content in Karen's larger organization. So just like she said, we have deliverables. We sit together as a team, the writers, and some of my team goes over and uh, works on uh, with, with some of the shell team, we call them, the Windows team, to, to find how best to support the needs from the writing perspective. And then another part of the team goes over and works with engineers on our support bot. And sometimes that's done remotely, some meaning like right here where we all sit together. Sometimes you you go not far across campus. It's not a huge campus, but go and, and sit in meetings and studies and all kinds of stuff. And then the Cortana folks, same kind of thing. We sit together, but then we spend a lot of time with that team as well. Over time, you, you build deep relationships with these folks. And not only like one of the things that I think is, is really great is many of us sit right here in the same space, different office, but same space with the design team. And so we're able to really get in tight partnerships with those folks. So I guess one of the key points to what we do is to be able to develop those relationships with our partners deeply as a centralized team. That's fantastic. And that I talk about that really regularly uh, in terms of content strategists' jobs and roles, which is to connect the dots between the designers and the developers and the researchers and so on, because it ultimately the experience is going to be fueled by that content. So it sounds like your writers, your UX writers are also playing a real strategic role in terms of how the, the products are being designed and built. That's accurate from our perspective. And one thing that I would add is one of the interesting, I guess it's best to say perspectives that we gain is kind of the overall view of products and products and how they integrate together because we are kind of driving these relationships with partners across products. And so we have more of a, a unified perspective of what that flow or that experience would be. Excellent. Say, so tell me a little bit about, Karen, you mentioned working with creative writers. Tell me a little bit about the background of some of your team members. You've got 150 content folks. Surely they didn't all major in technical communications. <laughs> That's a great point, right? I think of sort of, you could divide it in thirds. We've got a couple thirds of the organization that are, are developers as well as writers, right? So they can actually write code samples for the content that they're creating. And then on the areas that we're talking about here with Jonathan, we've specifically focused on people with theater background, fiction, journalism, creative writing, people that have been copywriters, uh, sometimes with marketing organizations, people that can be both concise and creative and write 
uh, if you think of journalism, catchy headlines, right? The types of things that we all like to click on. And that was a functional change that we're a few years into, but the return on the investment to the business has been demonstrable and the type of copy that we have in our products, um, the way of working of that these people bring to the conversations as Jonathan, I think used the word narrative. And we've been talking a lot about storytelling is really, again, uh, connecting and you, Christina said connecting the dots, which I was like, yes, she said that first. Um, <laughs> I say that 10 because, times a day. <laughs> okay. We think of that a lot, right? Like part of what some of the challenges are with software products are you have siloed features that then we provide to customers and hope they figure out how they all work together. And many companies have gotten better at that. Google, Apple, certainly Microsoft made progress there as well. And this capacity and this capability and the role that we bring into those conversations is one of the biggest things we do is connect those dots, whether we're helping feature teams learn what others are doing. It's sort of the tyranny of the urgent. Everyone's busy every day. So uh, the content team and the writer specifically sort of serve as a, an umbrella view that can help connect the engineering teams, the features, the experiences and then actually create the narrative across those things. So Jonathan has a couple people on his team. It be, might be useful to have him explain a little bit of where they're actually serving a function that's somewhat new to the software uh, development phase, which is embedding with these feature teams and helping them tell the story of the feature that they're going to build. And sometimes involves creating multimedia along with that storytelling. Um, Jonathan, you might have a good example of the, the talent of those people. I'm thinking of a few people specifically. Yeah, exactly. As Karen said, we're calling that internally storytelling. And normally what our focus uh, as writers was always on the customer touch point. But now we're seeing there's real value and we can have uh, impact, this connection of dots and bringing that to the table through internal support. And that is starting off with just people having ideas and wanting to push ideas, but how do we articulate that in a way that makes sense both, you know, as we seek, as we go down the path of development, let's say, or before that, but also then it extends into, we can inform the marketing storytelling around the product once it does reach the customers. But it starts by really kind of embedding yourself with folks who have these ideas and working with them on the whiteboard, wherever, and just saying, okay, how are we going to express this? And writers are becoming more and more valuable internally to Microsoft for that function. And it's exciting. So one, the biggest question I get asked is, how do I sell the value of content and content strategy into my organization? Because this point that you make about writers becoming more and more valuable within Microsoft I'm going to assume that wasn't always the case. Can you talk a little bit about how that change came about and what kind of, whether it was internal education or change management opportunities, how is this evolving? You're right. It hasn't always been that way. Uh, and I give a, a, some of that credit certainly to our some of the leaders here at Microsoft. We've had some engineering leaders that have leaned into providing design-led experiences, uh, thinking of the customer experiences as opposed to leading with the technology, if that makes sense. Uh, if you look back over 10 or 15 years of technology development, everything, we look at us like everything moves so fast, right? And so you often have the technology that's driving the experience. In the past few years, we've had some leaders say, we need to sort of 
change the conversation so that we're thinking more about that customer experience and what that should look like. And then we've had some opportunity uh, where you have riders that are part of the conversation and it's a fortuitous relationship where the need is there, the talent is there, and open-mindedness to thinking differently around how we start the process move through the process and bring that to conclusion that has had the opportunity to sort of change the way people think of it here. So, you know, to that question that you get asked often, it's a difficult one depending on what the environment is. There's always a change management component that sometimes you bring to the table. And some of it's just focusing on the work itself, which seems like an easy answer. And I don't mean to trivialize it yet. Offering sometimes like, hey, let me take a stab at just writing this story down and putting some craft to it. And you you invest your own time, you bring that to the table, and then other people see what the value is there. And you know, that's one of my biggest experiences is the work often sells itself. And sometimes you have to um, muscle in in ways that you don't usually. And some of that's by offering to help. Like, hey, you know, let me just take a stab at this and put it down into words and people see that creativity and that need and self-select that, wow, I can't do that. You got any more of that, where that came from. Jonathan, do you find that your team needs to muscle in on stuff or are people pretty well settled that this is important? We need this. We're going to lead with this. It varies. Sometimes we can walk right in early on. Other times we have a lot of advocacy ahead of us when we need to start diving in with some partners. It just depends on who they are and, and what their perspective is. It's changing though, but still we, we do have to be advocates on behalf of our, our own work. From Karen's team, we, we do a lot of advocacy for the voice of Microsoft. We call it voice and tone. And now we're adding personality in there for these conversational experiences. And um, we continue to go around and preach to the choir where that makes sense for other writers, other uh, designers that, that agree we need cohesion here at Microsoft. Everything has to reflect that Microsoft brand, but also to new people so they can see oftentimes the advocacy is about just awareness. It's an awareness move. Some people don't know that they even have access to writers. And when they do, then they, they brighten up and they think, oh my gosh, we could do all kinds of things. I would say one of the things too that I would add to the equation is we really, we really look for, for data opportunities to support the work, whether that's external or internal. We test our own work and then we bring that to that conversation saying, look, at this is how we move the needle by changing the tone of this language or by using this kind of voice in a bot we can see deeper engagement by these numbers. And numbers, of course, help, and they have to be accurate and genuine. So we work hard to find those to measure what we're doing, of course, and to, to change what we're doing if we see an opportunity uh, to create a better customer experience, but also to keep reminding people that we can add value that is measurable. And then, of course, there's a large conversation going on because I'm thinking that people will be listening to this and saying, yeah, yeah, that's, this is a tech company, and that's true. But there's a larger conversation that's going on that I like to talk about a lot, which is uh, as tech continues to just be the, the next era and technology influenced experiences across all businesses, we're going to see a need for more human centric design and writing and engineering. And that's, of course, that's, we've been saying that for years. But one of the things that folks from the humanities side of the world, and that's us writers, 
we can bring the human perspective. And that's going, I predict, and I'm not the only one, I'm basically capitalizing on many great thinkers, but I predict that uh, that's going to play more and more of a role. And as a result, we're going to capitalize on that need, that need to bring the human touch to these experiences as opposed to just ones and zeros. And then that's something that I've discovered is super valuable when we do bring more writing from the artistic side of the discipline. That's outstanding and exciting. There was an article that I cut out of a magazine back when I used to do those kinds of things in the early 90s, in the early 90s that sort of said 10 jobs that will be around in the new millennium. You know, and they said, oh, everything's changing. The Internet's going to blow things up, blah, blah, blah. But one of those 10 jobs was storyteller. And so it's so cool 20 some years later to hear, yeah, this role is continuing to gain prominence and will be ever more important as we continue to elevate conversations amongst each other and with machines. Creepy, but real. Well, and, and to keep it from being creepy and to keep it real, we need human contact there. I'm super passionate about that. And actually, just uh, you just reminded me of something. Uh, I remember reading something that David Mamet had written in, in a dark moment where he was saying, I will always have a job, even if we have some sort of apocalyptic moment and we're all sitting around a fire somewhere camped out. I will still have a job <laughs> to right. tell stories. <laughs> That's right. The playwrights among us will survive. That's, That's right. right. And yeah. right. storytellers. Exactly. They're, they'll be the ones getting the, the choice pieces of wild horse that we all end up eating or whatever. <laughs> God, talk about taking a dark turn. Just leave it to whoa, me. Whoa, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Hey, now, back it up. Get back chicken tacos, <laughs> it's been It's been a long, it's been a long winter. What can I say? I have one other question I wanted to ask around the topic of governance. When you have 150 content people who are crafting content for so many different touch points, both you know internally and externally and across different content media and technologies, how do you maintain consistency in terms of specifically around that voice and tone structure that you mentioned? It's such another great question. Thank you. You know, that one is... Governance is a tough word, and it's reemerging here in a couple places at Microsoft, but we're talking about what we're trying to accomplish behind that word. I'll attribute a couple things from the voice and tone personality work that Jonathan mentioned, um, and some of that we'll share when we see you at Confab, has made a big difference in helping people ground the thinking about their content relegating the conversation to, to our organization. And we embrace our own family, right? So uh, whether it's a developer or an IT admin, we talk about how these voice and tone principles are important to creating a personal touch with our customers because everybody wants something that's easy to understand, even if you're on the more technical side. So that's the one piece around the words and the expression of those words are Different writing teams all really lock arms around our voice and tone principles, and we embrace the role of leaders at the company, um, certainly partnering with other content teams at the company. There's only a couple other large ones like ours. 
And so that's an important asset that's both thought leadership and practical application in the products and in anything that we give to our customers. And even as Jonathan said, in those internal communications, we want to walk the talk, right? Like if we're really going to be warm and relaxed and friendly with our content, we should be that in our email. We should be that in our personal conversations. So that's a big piece. The other thing I'll add is that being part of the design organization that actually creates the designs for our products, that actually helps us bring cohesion across all of the content experiences as well. Because as we all know, content isn't simply the craft of great words. It involves, particularly in this day and age, uh, multimedia and infographics and all types of visuals, videos that people look to when they think about content. And so being part of a design organization that is setting the principles for the design language that is in our products and the expression of the visuals in and around our products helps us also bring cohesion across our content experiences. And then ultimately, it's leaders like Jonathan and in those teams that are doing sort of the self-checks. And we have a process here uh, that we call CRITs. So you'll have a UI crit critique. We'll have a content share out where we're looking at content and walking through things together, getting feedback from each other, et cetera, that that helps also bring some cohesion. So that process is replicated across various teams as well. And then it's about empowering people. And it it can't be something that you govern and police every day. It's got to be a trustful environment in which we trust each other to do our own work and attach that work to these principles that I just spoke about. And like, let's go do great things together. And that's that culture environment that we treasure and is really important for us to nurture and foster. You know, what's so interesting is that you totally used the words govern and police in the same sentence, kind of to mean the same thing. And that's very interesting to me because I find that when when organizations, the term governance first gets introduced, that's exactly what people think. They're like, oh, governance, that means people are going to try to govern my work and police it and smack me down. And I don't want that because nobody understands my content the way that I understand my content, of course. And when we talk about it, we really talk about governance as providing more of like a common foundation for content processes and principles and so on across an organization. And really, that sounds exactly like what you're talking about, so that it's a healthier thing that does empower people versus something that polices them. Yeah, and I think it's just words, right? Like we're all wordsmiths, right? So we we get it. You use a different word and you get a different response. And we've seen that in spades here at Microsoft. And the word principles you just used, and I think that's a good one, is you start by laying down principles. And what I like about that word is it's objective. You can say, hey, these are principles that we arrived at. You can explain the process by which you arrived at them, but there isn't a huge subjective or opinionated layer to them. Once you get agreement on the principles, then you can all attach them. And you also use the word foundation, which is fantastic. So yeah, that word governance is a tough one for me. Uh, it implies some, some something that feels less positive and but principles like heck yeah let's attach to those and let's go do great things together based on those things just to add on to that we have alignment with our fluent design system here that's a design system that i encourage anybody that's listening to go research and in there is this fundamental principle that it's not downward push of like you say policing do these things but rather these are our principles you work with us to see how we can adjust those so that they apply to you and you can succeed. And then it all feels like it's all in the same family. And it's that inclusive approach rather than the policing approach that we really have to be thoughtful about 
mindful about so that we can gain partners. And then, but I do want to address something too that, that we're very clear about with our writers is not that this is the wrong thing to do, but if you want to be empowered as a writer, you really need to think about how precious you are about your work. You said, my content that only I understand. And, and that's <laughs> fine because we want that kind of ownership and that kind of passion around what we're doing. But we still need to really express the power of not feeling precious, of being flexible. both. And so we're trying to be flexible on both sides. That's fantastic. And I think that that's a really important skill for any content professional to have is to not hold on to the emotions or the politics of content and be able to continually focus on business goals and user needs. But here's the question I want to put to you, though, is that coming back around to this idea of, and if you want to call it policing, that's fine, but ultimately what happens when content comes out and it's crap? I mean, who gets to say, no, this is not good enough and this is not going out? I would say first and foremost, who gets to say it is the customer. That's what we really want to see how, how our work resonates with the customer. So we watch for feedback. And then internally, too, all feedback is good feedback. Whether or not it's crap or not is subject to some deliberation after the fact. Sometimes it's obvious. <laughs> sometimes it's opinion-based. Is this right? crap? <laughs> <laughs> Let's ponder this. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> I really like to think that we're, we're testing our content in the customer's world in the world that they are experiencing our words, just like design, you know, and that's why we work so closely with research here in our organization and across Microsoft. I think one of the biggest things that I see where we're continually trying to remind ourselves to pause and improve is particularly when people get so busy, we're hitting deadlines. We sometimes fall into patterns of sort of formal tech jargon sometimes. And it's that constant check of like, I certainly send feedback or I, I at least try and ask questions like, hey, help me understand how the decision making around some of this content or does this reflect our voice and tone principles? And it's particularly when we get into trying to describe complex UX flows or technology that we have to, again, pause. And it's, it's that craft of rewriting. Can I make this simpler and easier to understand? And when you're in a hurry and you're moving fast, like you sometimes fall back into the easiest patterns. And that is a place where I, I think from my perspective, I find that we iterate more when we're saying like, whoa, this still, does this sound like what we really want it to sound like? And can the customer understand it? And that's got to be an iterative thing that we hold ourselves up to. And also something that you mentioned, Karen, that I think is important that we learned a lot with the work that we did on Cortana is the necessity to slow down. You really are just champing at the bit to go faster, 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 get more work done because it's, it's a mountain ahead of you of what needs to be done. And sometimes you have to look at your priorities and think, okay, is this a point where we're going to slow down? And so when, it, when it's either high customer hit or something that may uh, resonate with certain sensitivities, let's say, you really have to be willing to slow the process down despite what other people are saying, you know, hurry, hurry, hurry. But you have to be selective too, because no business would be able to support a bunch of writers going slow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can't you can't stop the content train while you think carefully all the time. That's yeah, for sure. That's right. Well, you've both been really generous with your time. Thank you so much. I it sounds like you're doing just terrific work with your team there. We can't wait to hear more about it at Confab in May. I really appreciate your time. It's been a terrific conversation. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Really, really fun. Can't wait to be there. 
Yeah. Woohoo, confab. Okay. Yay, confab. Yeah. confab, go confab. Right. That's right. <laughs> You've been listening to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at, of course, braintraffic.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.